Coming up, readings beyond the raffle and Theoryland approved conjecture. Deep dive into the spells and scrolls of nerd culture. Absorb Stormlight. Home sympathy. Harness Sayadar and Sayadeen. This is Phantology. You may have heard of us. All right, what's up? Hi, judges and crazy heralds. This is Stephen, Ben, and Josh with our fourth fourth episode covering Rhythm of War. If you don't even count the ones we did leading up to it and the pre-release chapters that I did. So we're still very invested in the book. We're still loving it and slowly making our way through. We're covering part, part four in this episode. So if you haven't read up to part four, probably don't listen because we're going to be doing major spoilers. But the good news is we haven't read any further than that. So we haven't even read any of the interludes into part five. So you are good to listen if you have not got that far either. So Ben, Josh, I mean, are we making the right decision here by pausing before getting into part five? Because we're kind of right at the cusp here. And from what we've heard, it gets it gets pretty exciting from here on out. Yeah. You know, I think that this might be one of the reasons I'm not enjoying this book as much as I thought I would, because I'm taking so much time to analyze like each part. And I'm not sure that's how the book's meant to be read. You know what I mean? Like, especially the like transition between part two and three was like, you should just keep reading. You know what I mean? Or sorry, between three and four. I feel like we're shooting ourselves in the foot here by being content creators now. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're taking the hit so you don't have to. Man, if you were to put any sand next to me, it would be immediately white because of how invested I am in this book. <laughs> oh, nice. Did that just come to you, Josh? That just came to you? <laughs> just no preparation? <laughs> well, it came to me when you were doing your intro. I'm like, dang it, I, ben, ben beat me Ooh. to a comment. Okay, okay. But honestly, I've really been enjoying this book. And I, I think that there's some merit to what Ben's saying that I think when you are creating content, you are thinking deeper and being a little bit more analytical and maybe critical of the book. But also for me, it's kept me reading at a faster pace than I would usually read, which is has helped me stay you know, a lot more invested in the book and immerse myself more because I'm making myself set aside the time to do it and really take, you know, take the time to read and understand it. I listened to all of part two twice because I was on, I read it myself and then I was on a road trip with my wife and she was there. And so expert. Yeah. And then I listened to most of part three twice. And so I feel like I've, you know, been a lot more immersed in the book than I usually would be. Well, I, that's good that you're reading it faster, but these have been a bottleneck for me because I finished part Oh, come on. Night. You had to wait one day. I you waited, waited one day. a whole night of reading time. I could be done right now. No, you were reading uh, last night at like midnight or something. No, 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 like, no. I finished last night at like nine. I gave up like basically a whole night of reading time. Hey, props to you, Ben, for making that commitment because Jake and Ryan from Phantology yeah. didn't. And I'm just going to yeah. throw them under the bus right now. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if they're listening to this one or if they're just like, such snobs that they've already finished the book, so they don't even care what we have to say in part four. I guess we'll see. We can find out seeing how uh, they treat us 
in the next recording we do together. <laughs> I don't know. Jake and Ryan aren't the only ones uh, not innocent because you two both forgot to put spoiler tags on some very important comments. Oh, come on. That was a minor thing. Minor. And hey, don't don't make it seem like Discord is dark and full of spoilers because uh, that was just a minor thing. It was edited right away. Uh, if you want to join Discord and talk with us, we do put spoiler <laughs> tags on the comments. Major things will not be ruined for you other than Josh picking it. Small Plus, that was, that was in an admin channel. That was not even open to the public. I was going to ask you guys if you feel like there's a club going on in the Rhythm of War spoilers channel that you don't have access to. I, every time I scroll back to the channel, I'm like, oh, gosh, dang it. I just want to be involved. It keeps on turning. Hey, you got to mute that. You got to mute that I channel. Do. I do. It's but... an easy solution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if you want to talk with Phantology more, you can do that on our Discord channel, on our Discord server. That is, invites are on our episode descriptions and on our website and social media platforms. If you want to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash Phantology underscore books. And you can find our full catalog at www.phantologybooks.com. Everything from lots of Sanderson things. We still need to cover more Sanderson. We haven't covered everything there. Uh, we're reading through Wheel of Time right now with a uh, with a first-time reader. We've covered all of Dresden Files. That was a big chunk of 2020. And then I guess we'll see where we're going to go in 2021. The slate's uh, pretty wide open. So drop us some recommendations of things we need to read. Yeah, my, my main 2021 goals, just putting it out there, is Malazan. We've done the first two Malazan. And I really want to get into Discworld. Starting some of those. Hmm. That could be cool. Yeah, quick quick correction there. It's actually Malazan. Oh, Malazan. Yeah, often often uh, mispronounced, but I listened to an interview with Steven Erickson. He said Malazan, so we're go- we're going with that. Okay. But Malazan. I'm with you, Josh. Yeah. Yeah, we need to read a more uh, Malazan book of the fall, and we've only gotten through the first two. There's ten. I think the next eight could take off twenty twenty one because those things are thick. But Discworld will be fun too. Those th- those are funny, from what I've heard. Yeah, I want. To, I've also never read Game of Thrones, so that could be something we jump into. And you've outed yourself by saying you never read Game of Thrones because the name of the series of the books is actually a Song of Ice and Fire. So you've watched Game of Thrones, but you haven't read a Song of Ice and Fire. Clearly, <laughs> okay, Sir Snobian. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that's a Discord deep cut, <laughs> but uh, probably well deserved. Anyway, let's talk part four. So Phantology has taken upon ourselves to go through the burden of preparing our thoughts and our notes at some expense from what Ben is saying to maybe our reading experience. I don't know. I I think maybe I've enjoyed the books even more, but we have done our Teravangian-esque duty here in being the ones to break down part four for you. So we start with the interludes. These are the interludes before part four starts. So the Zeth, Chiri Chiri, and Teravangian. These three interludes were the biggest disappointment set of interludes that I've read yet. I like the first two sets a lot more than these three. I didn't think I really got anything out of these three. I'm sorry. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. I Before you said that, I was trying to think when you mentioned interludes at first, I was like, what were those about? And then... Exactly. I can't even remember what the Cherry Cherry one was about besides that she can talk. And... yeah. Cherry Cherry can talk, and that's pretty much it. And after reading Donchard, this interlude was a huge disappointment. I was hoping Donchard would be more important. I have a theory around Donchard with like the intent, capital I, and the command 
if you haven't read Don Shard yet, we're not going to spoil, but I was thinking that that would be important and it's clearly not going to be. Yeah, so that was kind of weird. And then Teravangian, I mean, you have some good setup for him where he's like, okay, I'm going to try and be on the side of humanity again. And then just nothing. Well, no. Total it, fail, right? It gave you his his plan was to get the honor or the, the blade and that Seth has to kill Odium. Yeah, he was trying to get Nightblood to Dalinar, I guess. He he knows that there's something about Nightblood that Odium can't see into the future, but he tries to get Zeth, like get him on his side, manipulate him a little bit, and he totally fails, and he fails to talk to Renarin. So uh, I guess we're hoping for better things for Teravanji, and I'm still kind of waiting for the, sh- the shoe to drop for his plot against Odium. I know, it, it's setting it up for a major part five, you know, switching between Teravangian desperately trying to convince Seth to go into a vision with Dalinar combined with some drama going down at the tower combined with drama going down in Shadesmar. Like this is all pretty well set up, I think for part five. Uh, hold on. But what you just described was almost exactly what happened in Oathbringer. Yeah. I mean, you, well, got, you got Seth coming in at the end, you got Dalinar uniting so that they could come back from Shadesmar. You got Dalinar showing down with Odium. Like, you got to have a different climax than part than than Oathbringer. Well, it's very different in terms of like this is a smaller scale conflict for this entire twelve hundred page book, where they're really just trying to defend the tower. That's true. With some honor spread manipulation. Yeah, this is like beginning of King of the Hill right now, and humans have not been doing very well. They just left. They just left the hill at the very beginning, so it's no it's no <laughs> surprise. For me, I'm I'm with you, Josh. Part four and really parts one through four have been a lot of setup, and I trust Brandon that it's going to pay off. But is it too much setup? No, it that's kind of what it, I'm trying okay. to think through. Like, have there been enough things paying off that keep the action moving? I can point to some parts here that are just a little slow that I would prefer to move along faster. That's the thing, man. I love the payoff with like Navani and like how she discovers uh, the Stormlight and Voidlight and the fact that uh, Rabanael is going to use that to kill the Radiance, that was really good. But like, did I have to read through all of that Navani chapter? Like, granted, I love reading this book, but there needs to be other things that happen besides like Navani sitting at a desk for... for... Oh my gosh, there there are. Okay, wait, so are we going to move past the, the interludes? Because... Yeah, okay. Yeah, clear, I feel like... Clearly, we're moving past the interludes. One one notable thing from the interludes is there's a, a small detail with Zeth's backstory that I'm assuming will be important in book five, which is supposed to be the Zeth flashback book, which is that his father was tied up with the honor blades that the Shin are guarding. And Teravangian says, actually, your father is dead. So that's something to remember in three years when we read book five, I'm assuming. But yeah, let's move past the uh, the interludes and go into the main action. So we're going to talk through characters and we'll get to our Ben and I's criticism of the Navani's plotline and Josh's defense of that. But before we do that, let's actually talk about the chapter headings because I like doing that because I like trying to uh, figure out what the little blurbs at the beginning of every chapter are. So these headings are from Kellogg, right? Yeah, I mean, almost certainly. I don't think it's ever explicitly said, but yes. They've got to be. 
these ones weren't as much of a mystery as other ones have been a little more straightforward. Like, you know, okay, we, we have our crazy Harold Kellick writing these. And the thing that I got of this was Yezrin isn't really dead. Like we thought he was, but actually, yes, he is dead because the soul is fading. And also you need to let bam, Ba'edo Mishram go or bad things will happen. So I, my mind's kind of trying to wrap itself around all of this thing with the Yezrin dead. Yes. No magic yeah. dagger gemstone thing i'm not putting it together yet yeah okay steven i need help understanding bam okay because i guess i just kind of got lost and i assumed she wasn't super important but now it seems like everything revolves around her well so she's been mentioned in previous books can't tell you exactly where but a little bit of a coming out party main we haven't seen explicitly on screen so Baido mishram she's one of the unmade and she was the one who gave the singers some forms during the what they call the false desolation, which was, I believe, when the recreants happened at the conclusion of this time period. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just going off the top of my head here, and there's a lot of details, so I, I could be wrong. So please go ahead and correct me if I'm wrong on Discord. But yeah, this is all tied together into the recreants, which we got a huge detail on later. But so, okay, so she's an unmade, but like, so most, I feel like most unmade kind of have like a theme to them or whatever, right? Like, yeah, there's like a theme that governs them. What's her theme? I don't think we know exactly. Yeah, as far as like some kind of power or emotion or things in this, all we know is that she gave the listeners these forms. She kind of stepped in for Odium when the fused weren't able to come back in for whatever reason. Okay, and she's not the, she's not the one that, She's not Sha Not. Okay, she's not Sha Not because Sha Not is not the corrupted's friend. Okay, and Bam is currently trapped away. Yeah, Bam is trapped away in a gemstone somewhere. And Sha Not was also the unmade that led them through the uh, oath gate at Kolinar. Yes. Okay, but we don't really like Sha Not. Seems to be good, kind of. Sha Not wants well, to take out Odium. Very self-serving. Good. Yeah, very self-serving good because she's like sneaking spren underneath Odium's nose, and we know that like way back in part two, she sent like a couple spren to your Thiru, so to the two Marais and the Ghost Bloods. Yeah, so this is all interesting. It's kind of stuff to kind of keep track of. There's a lot to keep track of at this point in the book. Yeah, yeah we're juggling a lot, and this kind of stuff is stuff that's totally in the undertext of the actual story. Right. Yeah, it's kind of like you get like maybe an interlude here, a chapter heading there, and you just kind of have to keep track of it. Which is, you know, part of the appeal of reading Stormlight Archive for huge nerds like us that love this kind of stuff. Yep, and hopefully we help help you juggle it just a little bit. I will say I was right on the previous chapter headings. Yeah, I said that Ravaniel was writing them, and I guess I was half right because Navani was writing half of them. Yeah, but I thought that that was a nice thing that came together well in this one it wasn't a huge mystery like Oathbringer up until the very end which is good because you don't want to have the same type of thing but this in-world book was really the notebook and we kind of it wasn't that hard to piece together right yeah and I think we actually said in our part three podcast that it was we predicted that would be kind of them writing it jointly I, I think we kind of talked about maybe that Navani was the one doing the undertext and Rabonel was the one doing the main writing anyway so we pretty much nailed that one yeah we were able to piece that together but so okay i guess we haven't moved on to talking about them yet 
Well, yeah. Okay, let's start uh, going into Navani. So Navani and Rabaneo, probably the two, did they get the most screen time? I guess Venli probably got the most screen time with all her flashbacks. But there were several chapters of Navani doing her iterative scientific process of getting closer and closer to rhythm of war and war light and the anti-light and and eventually it concluded into chaos and then suddenly chaos out of order okay so josh tell us why we're wrong in thinking this went on too long okay because it this did an amazing job of establishing rabonael as like the best great character slash villain i think of this book so far and it was done in a guise of navani like it was done from entirely her point of view and it was done primarily focusing on her studies, but it really did such an amazing job of establishing this character in my mind, you know, and this really culminated in the last chapter. So I'm jumping to the new part four for this, Mm -hmm. but within a page of each other, you were like mourning for her that she did all of this to save her daughter. And then you were like aghast because she was going to just start, she had a plan to completely destroy the night's radiant. And that was within like a page of each other. You were torn, like wanting to cry for this character and then hating this character and realize that they had a plan to destroy everything you loved. And so the fact that this section, and I think that really part four did this for me, but the part that Navani's chapters made me so emotionally attached to this character means that it was time really well spent. And it wasn't just, you know, it was interesting learning about void light and Stormlight and all that. But what it did exceptionally well was establishing Rabona. Isle. I don't, dude, I think that they could have had that same reaction without the iterative scientific process that Navani went through. Whenever, whenever Rabona was in the room, I was fine with it. It does seem like Sanderson's indulging a little bit here and going into his, you know, chemist side some here. Rabonile which is the, interesting for some probably i don't know i feel like rabonile was in the room for most of it it would be like yeah i think so like she, she would start on a project for like the beginning of a chapter and then she would figure something out with it and then rabonile would come in and that's when the majority of the chapter would happen was with rabonile this now that we're talking about it it reminds me a little bit of emperor's soul where she's trapped in a room the whole time She's got visitors coming in and out. She's working on this magical scientific project. Yeah. Is is it the same story? It's pretty Navani's similar. Navani's plotline in story. part four and Emperor's Soul. It's pretty similar. It's pretty similar. I will say that the part I enjoyed was how sneaky Navani was with like knowing that Rabaniel would try to merge the Stormlight with the anti-light mm. or whatever and like creating like yeah. a bomb, but like not even being suspected because she's like, what did he do? (laughs) Like coming in and acting all innocent every once in a while, like at the end of Oathbringer where where Navani like made the guy hold the pain thing. The pain rail. Yeah. yeah. Um, You know, she's pretty good, but I still, man, I don't know. I think that first of all, I've never been sold that Rabonel is any type of good. I mean, I think I, I was sold at the very beginning of part one when we found out that she caused a, global pandemic that she was basically like the equivalent of a nazi scientist well i don't think that josh is saying by saying she's a great character josh isn't saying she's any type of good but he's saying that she's a character with really well realized 
motivations for herself. Like she's not evil for the sake of evil. She's evil because she's working against what our heroes want to have happen, but she's working for things that make sense for her. Yeah. Imagine, I mean, she's working to end this constant, like her entire existence for millennia has been coming and having a war. You know where she's coming from for wanting to end that war. And the only way she can end it is by destroying humanity. Yeah. I mean, like it it's not that she's a good character but she's well realized. Okay, I could I could get on on board with that. And I will say one of my favorite parts of this part was where Rabonael was like Navani, you don't have to call me by a title anymore. Like that's how much I respect yeah. what you're doing. That was sweet. So maybe I mean, did I she do that just to be manipulative though or does she really respect Navani because Navani is totally getting tricked here and played a bit by Raboniel for not not for the first time right part four ends pretty much the same way as part three and Navani's made some progress but ultimately she's helped the enemy I don't think Raboniel is is capitalizing on her trust right I don't think she's gotten played she always Sanderson painstakingly tells you that Navani realizes that this is a tightrope that she's walking and but she hasn't. She hasn't come out on top. It's been Rabani all. I don't think that that's being top. manipulated, though. I think that that's her own personality, like wanting to prove to herself that she's a scholar. Like, it's hard to be manipulated when you know that you're being manipulated, right? Like, I don't know. So I don't know. That, I guess I would just take issue with the word manipulated. She's definitely playing to Navani's sense of wanting to figure things out. So, so my thing is, she's given them both the weapon that can end the war. Navani figured it out how to trap the the how to trap fuse from coming back but in so doing she also gave them the weapon for trapping like the trapping sprint right but so, like navani said all Rabonel has has to do is kill her like and then and then it's nothing right and then humanity's gained absolutely zero yeah and i guess we assume by the end navani's gonna turn the tables and free the sibling and free the tower or something i mean hopefully we hope for a happy ending not necessarily it's not like everything's gonna this is the penultimate and even the the fifth book i wouldn't expect to end on it with with everything working out but i do expect navani to get some type of win because she's been taking l's for a while here yeah but she's also she's been She's been losing on the aggregate, but winning with what we want her to win on, right? Which is expanding the world and expanding what we view yeah. as possible. And and again, I, I go back to the fact that our main thing in like part one and two was that we didn't have a really good, well-defined villain. And now we have that. And yeah, that was true. pretty much all done through Navani's part. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Also, I think Navani, the character herself was really well-developed because I still like this self-doubt of, oh, I'm not a scholar, I'm not a scholar. Here she is finding things that, uh, you know, fused that are millennia old, haven't been able to figure out. So, yes, you are a scholar, Navani. You're probably the best one out there. And back from the prologue, Gavilar belittles her, right, with these great discoveries that he's made. Navani, you you won't ever amount to anything. And yet here here she is actually discovering how to do the very thing that he thought was so awesome when he didn't do it himself. Yeah. So I think there's some really great connections and Navani is a great character at this point. Yeah, so I agree with that. I, I will say I like the I like that the theme of her of, of becoming a scholar when she's not. I do think that Sanderson kind of bludgeons you over the head with it a little bit. Like you can get that theme across without having to say it all the time. And especially the theme of she likes deriving order from chaos. Like you don't have to say that phrase like 200 times 
Right. I don't know. So that was kind of one critique I had when I was reading it. I was okay with it, but sounds like it stood out to you. All right, moving on past Navani. So like we say, part four ends with her giving up the secret and Rabaniel is going off to kill all the Knights Radiant with the, the anti-Stormlight that she will be developing soon. Well, and we should say she's like being forced to develop that anti-Stormlight, right? She hasn't developed it yet. She just kind of knows the process that she needs to do. Is that is that right? Am I? Well, Rabaniel has the notebook and she's got the plates and so she should be able to figure it out in short order. Okay. Is how I took it. I thought she was making Navani sit there and figure it out for her while she like went and destroyed the node. No, she, she doesn't know she doesn't know where the node is. That's still to be determined, I guess. But let's talk about uh, another character in the tower. Let's go to Venley. So, did the Venley flashbacks get any better for you guys in part 4 than they were in part 3? I would say the best part of it was when she when we had the flashback of the of when like the Everstorm and the High Storm and she like falls down and she's about to be killed by um a night radiant was that kaladin because i remember that scene happening no not exactly i thought for a second because it was a spearman but the spearman had a helm on so it, it wouldn't have been kaladin but do we i want to go back and read words of radiance right and to see, see if there was like some random parshendi that I kaladin almost was, killed man. and decided I, not to i want to say there was based on that description bless she would have recognized kaladin with the with the sill spear at that point right and kaladin flew into the conflict late as well so would he even gosh i don't remember the exact details of words of radiance i don't think it was kaladin i think she would have recognized he was radiant okay that's fair but it was also cool to see it from their perspective like they're just like fleeing around lightning without realizing what's going on and Mm -hmm. so it, it was fun that was the best part of the flashback i would say everything else was still like we knew what was going to happen we like gosh i don't know man I thought they were better than three part. The part three flashbacks. I didn't really think there was much substance to as far as like new stuff, compelling stuff. For me, the highlight was the the view of the Gavilar assassination night because we got basically a bonus viewpoint yeah, right. to the ones yeah. that we usually see just at the at the prologues. And it was interesting to see that uh, Nail was involved in setting up the whole thing. So that we're getting more and more layers to this yeah. onion of Gavilar's death. That was pretty crazy how Venley just like played nail like during that part. Did she? I mean, she lied to him and he, and he bought it. So I guess a little bit. Yeah. That's what we call because, manipulated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess that would be play. You're, you're right. Yeah. Because he saw uh, Ulam or U- Ulam, however you say his name, the, the void spread. And he was like, wait a second, that shouldn't be happening. And he assumes that Gavlar is the one that made it happen. And do we actually know? I mean, it was that woman, the Axemides, whatever her name was, woman, who brought Venli, Ulam, originally. Do we assume that she was associated with the Sons of Honor and Gavilar was involved? I guess so. I, I don't so. know. That's that's kind of weird. I wish we did have some more information on that. I will say also, I'm confused at who actually ordered Gavilar's death. Was it Venli or was it Ashonai? They, they voted. Right, yeah, but so I feel Ashona like Ashona was it. doing it for different reasons too. Like they had compete. Exactly. Yeah. So I I kind of got lost on that part, honestly. No, I think I think you got it. Yeah. So Ashonai thought that Gavilar was trying to bring the Spren back, whereas Venli was actually bring trying the to bring fuse. Er, the fuse back. 
And so the, why did Ashona I think that? Because she the the prologue in Oathbringer, she stumbles in on Gavilar and Gavilar shows her right. the spears and talks about what he's trying to do. Yeah, so so Ashona I thinks that Gavilar is trying to bring the fuse back, the old gods back, whereas Venli is actually the one trying to bring the gods back. And Gavilar, we I still don't know if we quite know if Gavilar was actually trying to, or if I I don't think we know his exact intentions. Okay. At this point. Do you assume that the prologue in the fifth book is going to be Gavilar point of view? Mm, I think it'd be cool. We we need it. Yeah. We yeah. get the last piece of the puzzle here. So okay, to finish up with Venley. Uh, I I really also enjoyed her scene with uh, Ashonai when they were kind of bonding over their their mother, and then it was kind of like the last calm before the storm, and then like uh, Venli walks out into no, it was Ashonai that walks out into the storm right after that to mm-hmm. kind of, and that's when Ashonai bonds Tambor for right. the first time. So that was cool, and she sees a chasm fiend. That was a cool scene. Well, the well the chasm he came from. Timber was in the chasm fiend, right? He was helping animate the chasm fiend. I don't know about no, that. No, I thought I thought they had to be like special gravity spren that bonded mm-hmm. with the chasm fiend. Chasm fiend. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, the way I read it was that he came from the chasm fiend. I don't think that's true. It did seem like they were related, but I thought they were a special kind of spren that allowed them to grow extra large. But, but we well, we know that spren can be be in the gem heart of chasm fiends right i think that's what i was saying yeah well i think multiple spren can be probably i mean you see void and yeah so anyway but yeah that was that was cool yeah so that was a fun scene and then i don't know is there anything else that really stood out yeah and as far as those flashbacks that's about as far as we go when we go to present day benley so there were some interesting things there like she decides to help out and she rescues Lyft, but she still can't say the words. Tambor tells her, not yet. Yep. And I, that was kind of weird. It seemed like she was ready. And she was like, oh, I just need to rescue Lyft. And then I'll be able to. And she still can't for whatever reason. And then she learns that there's more listeners out there on the edge of the Shattered Plains, which is great news for her. But then she goes to tell Relaine what's going on. And that goes off very badly. And now she's kind of going off. And Josh, do you still abide by your moses theory here or is this falling apart i mean i i don't know no i i still think it's working they're they're still trying to get their little group out and band with the other ones wandering in the wilderness and all that's not exactly how it happens in the bible but it's what happens right now i sorry i will say that i think that venley the whole like in order for her to say those oaths she has to realize that the whole tower is like a prison right yeah. now. Right. Like, and the Knights Radiant are basically being kept prisoner as like when they're unconscious. So that I think has to be what she has to do in order to say those. Yeah. There's definitely not time at the end of the book for her to make it all the way out there to the shattered plains and do stuff with the people. Out she's there. not gone, man. So she's no, going to yeah, decide she... at a critical moment to, to hang back and help the tower. Right. I don't know. What are, what are her powers? What, what, what are will shape her? She's gonna be a well. Well, she right? she can do transportation, so she can go into Shadesmar, dude, and she can do the stone molding. This this is going to be how it happens, right? She says the oath, she gets more powers. She suddenly goes into Shadesmar. She flees. She frees the tower, gets the powers, goes into Shadesmar, pops out with her with her homies. 
Or does she open up a portal into Shadesmar, bring in Shallan and Adolin and the army of Otterspren and Deadeyes, and they liberate the tower? And that's exact. That, that's like exactly what happens in Oathbringer when they all when they all pop in from Shadesmar and go fight in Thalen. Yeah, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. We all know that Adelaine is going to be leading the charge with Deadeyes, though. That is going to happen. That's yeah, a fantastic guarantee. This is like straight up Return of the King. When he goes and gets the ghost army and comes oh, yeah. in. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Jumps off the ship and, and runs at him with no one. Yeah, that Adolin would totally do that. So Okay, so let's talk about Adolin. Yeah, let's go. So he's off there in lasting integrity, being held prisoner. These parts were so dang good. I these parts were amazing. Can I we just say that say. lasting integrity is like the greatest misnomer of all time? Because Tell us more. Well, I mean, lasting integrity. And they don't have like any integrity, right? At least most of the honor sprint don't. So I don't know. I feel I feel like that's just kind of okay. Kind of a funny thing. Apparently not. Apparently other people don't think it's funny, but I'll I'll say let, let me try. So I think lasting integrity is basically Super Mario Galaxy with the different gravities going around from different yeah. sides and talking about like crossing over different planes and having to reorient. I don't know if you guys ever played that game, but it was a part of my childhood, and I totally saw Adolin like jumping around like Mario. This is like Christopher Nolan's like dreamscape. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Okay, that's, that's probably the best. Josh one. wins. Josh wins. No, but seriously, the the setting is so cool. Honestly, the, the, I'm picturing in my in my mind like a modern day city. I, I'm picturing how I picture Singapore, like super clean where yeah. everything's like a little bit too orderly. I've never been to Singapore, but this is just like how it is in my head. And like everything looks really nice. It's also like at the end of Interstellar when they figure out the circular gravity yeah. thing, whatever that was called. Yeah. Or there's some parts in the uh, in the Three Body Problem trilogy that are kind of like this as well. So here's my question though. The setting didn't really influence the action at all. So do you think that we're going to see that setting actually play a role? Or is this just like, oh, this was like a thing in Sanderson's head that he just wanted to get out there? I don't think so. I think it was supposed to just kind of like set up this alien feel to it. And the Spren are characterized by the place that they live a little bit. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So Josh is a fan of Adolin's sequence here with with the trial. You know what it reminded me of? And it's been a long time since I've read Mistborn, but it reminded me of the Chandra trial. And I, I guess I don't want to give any more spoilers than that. Yeah, I have zero memory of that. I'm, I need to reread, reread those. That's probably a 2021 thing for me. Yeah. So if there is one criticism I have with part four, it is that I would have liked to spend maybe trim off a little bit of the fat from Navani and from Venley. Oh, come on, Josh. You said those were perfect. They No, they were great. They're like, I don't know. I'm not too into fitness, but I feel like they're at like, 20% body fat where they're like looking good, like super fit. But if they got down to like 18% body fat, then they would be like, you know, shred amazingly fit or something. Yeah. I don't know. But I feel like, and then it could have gone over to uh, Aelin and applied over there a little bit because I loved every part of the setting. I love the drama, the juiciness from um, the trial and from Shalon and her interaction. So I wish that we would have gotten more there. Are those body fat percentages accurate at all? Yeah, yeah, I think as far as like super fit people, I think like Josh, you can get down to like six percent body fat. So I don't, I don't like know. Aren't, aren't like Olympic athletes like six percent something like that? 
I think, yeah, I think a six, okay. I think a six pack, you need like 16% body fat to get us to have like a solid six pack, six pack. For those of us that know, Josh has always been the fat twin, but he's currently reversed the scales on, on that situation. Josh is looking to lower his percentages clearly, clearly top of mind, but not to distract from your point there. So the trial. So Ben, were you as okay. into it? I mean, I, I agree, Josh. I think we could have spent a little more time. I don't think I needed any more prep or I didn't need any more description of how complicated the legal system was. But I would have liked like maybe one additional little gimmicky element to how the trial worked or something a little more fun. Yeah. I could have seen that. I enjoyed it. I mean, it was cool kind of to see like Adolin gets played like we know he would. Like he didn't really stand a chance. I did like how Kalek wasn't like nothing really played out with him like we thought it was going to with uh with him presiding over the trial. So that was cool. I enjoyed how the high sprint basically like at the end just tried to make it a coup or not a coup, but like tried to override everything by like locking up Kalek. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was a good twist. And I feel like that was kind of the last gimmick I needed for the trial. And then with everything with Maya, I'm just going to stick with Maya. That's how I've always read it in my head. That was awesome. That was like Sanderson right there, like really hitting his, his stride. Yeah, I I put this on Discord and I stand by it. I think this was the first big twist of the book. Yeah. Hashtag we chose. So yeah, do you think that we chose or the fact that Maya like came back to life was the was bigger twist? Maya coming back to life has been hinted at for since Words of Radiance. You know, the fact when that she's becoming more sent. Yeah, yeah, the fact that she's becoming more sentient, and for sure an Oathbringer when she starts screaming and like when mm-hmm. he knows her, and he knows her name, and she can be summoned quicker than the usual ten. Yeah, lot lots of hints, but it didn't. It hadn't happened yet, and this yeah, was a so big moment. I, I wouldn't say that's a twist. I would say it's a big moment. But the twist of the Spren making a joint decision with their radiance to cause mm-hmm. the recreance. Dang, that was nuts. Yeah, exactly. Because everybody's like the humans to betray their oaths. Whereas like maybe the Spren were just as culpable. Maybe like does it take two to oath? You know, we don't know. And it seems like there's some reason the ink Spren blended is like, well, maybe this isn't even great news because it means that there was some reason that they saw that that had to be that was worth dying for that, you know, these oaths were so terrible. Or on the other hand, was it a result of the conflict? with Baido Mishram and the false desolation right. and whatever was going on at that time that we don't know much about. And that's also, kind of what I'm thinking. And also they didn't know that they were going to die for sure. Right? right. They knew that something bad would happen, but they didn't know they would die. Right. So my understanding is that humans destroyed uh Braze. What, what's the, what's the Not planet Braze. called? Not Braze. Yeah, Braze Wait, or Ashen. Ashen. Yeah. Yeah. So the humans destroyed Ashen with surges. People seem to think it's mostly Dustbringers. I'm kind of thinking it was Bondsmiths. That's like my little theory. But so they, but either way, they destroyed it with unconstrained, uh, unconstrained investiture yeah, yeah. related to yeah, tied to the surges. Yeah, yeah. So the yeah, unconstrained surges. That's the word I was looking for. And then they came to Roshar, and they figured out that with oaths and bonding the spren, then they could put like parameters around the surges. Right. This mm. is kind of like I'm extrapolating a little bit, but I think this is kind of said on page. So, okay. Josh, you don't think that 
I thought that a sprint was always required for a surge to take place, and Ashton didn't have sprint. That yeah, like that's what we think, but maybe Josh is kind of redefining. I don't doing think, a little Sanderson twist on I us. I don't. I don't think so because the way investiture works and like the broader Cosmere, like it doesn't always require. It requires a not not Nahel, Nile, like the river, like Nile. yeah, but but. Like in Mistborn, you just need the metal. You don't need Espren, you know. Yeah, but you also have to be Mistborn, or you have to have like be born with some type yeah. of ability, or snap and and get it. Yeah, in Dawnshard, they say you need intent and a command, and that's how Investiture gets uh, formed on the different planets, and it does seem to vary. So yeah, maybe on Ashen, maybe they didn't need it, and they came out of Roshar, and Spren were now available, and so things were redefined. And at the time, you know, shards are involved in changing things around and who knows anything is on the table. Yeah, really. we do. We do know that things work differently in different worlds, right? Like with uh, like six of the dust, like there's very Cosmere weird things happening there. Um, same with Elantris, right? So like we know that Investiture Warbreaker, war Investiture works differently in, in different worlds. So you could have a point there. Well, I, I'm pretty sure that they they it's confirmed that they were using surges somehow on action. There were definitely bondsmiths in the conversation that Dalinar has uh, part one, part two, somewhere back there. They talk about how there were bondsmiths before they came to Roshar. Yeah. So that you would assume that there were the other surges as well, but yeah, were Spren involved? Maybe not. Maybe the Spren were part of the Oaths. I, I could get behind that theory. I think we just need to, we just know so little really. Yeah. And did Spren exist before humans? I've always thought that Spren are a result of human uh, observation and emotion. No, Spren are are for sure part of the world. I I felt pretty confident on that. Like honor and cultivation came to the world and their influence created the Spren manifestations. There's there's splinters of the shards, right? Whatever terminology that is. It also has something to do with observation because observing Spren changes their behavior and and at some level like the emotion you know anger spren yeah those kind of spren okay yeah so this is all kind of deep diving back to back to adlin i think we can all agree that this was awesome and that we all kind of had many mouths dropping when she said we chose we chose and then the all the all the honor spren just like freak out like just slowly start walking away like well this is crazy yeah, so that was that was a cool moment. To go back to the deep dive a little bit, uh, it talks about something called Nile Spren, like specifically Spren that are like not your usual Spren. I, I assumed that Nile Spren were different, and I, I was thinking at the time, maybe Nile Spren just mean like higher orders of Spren that can form the bond, but also there's something with Spren and Soulcasters, and my theory is somehow, you know, Spren were trapped as well like Biodomishram and Gemstones, and then this is the Soulcasters we see. Now, Soulcasters are mentioned a little at the beginning of the book, and Navani says they're they're like the higher orders of Spren, but they're a lot smaller. And so could it be that this had something to do with the false desolation breaking and the recreants and all of this? Because it, it seems strange just that the knowledge from Oathbringer, the knowledge that the the uh, humans were really the Voidbringers would have caused the recreants, that always seemed a little strange to me. And so I'm glad now we have this room for some more details, but yeah. I don't know what it is. I, I think soul casters are involved somehow though. 
Yeah, Soulcasters are going to be involved. Okay, so what about Shalon? So I think that the one thing that I will say about this part is that it was kind of a battle between Shalon and Adolin for who you were more excited to read about, right? At least for me. Who the MVP was? Right, who the MVP was. Because I go switch away from Shalon to Adolin. I'm like, man, I was really getting into Shalon there, you know, and then it would kind of switch back. And Okay, so yeah, what do you guys think about that? For me, Adolin remains MVP, but this was really great for Shalon. So a lot of things here with Shalon, right? So we confirmed, let's talk about the first thing. We confirmed that pattern really was the second of Shalon's cryptics that she bonded and the first one she killed when she was a child. And Ben, you nailed this in part two. (laughs) Go back to the Discord. Mic drop. You can go back to the Discord notes and timestamp it and everything. And yeah, you had that one pegged. How did you figure that out? Like I said in the message, man, I like woke up with the knowledge. I don't know. I w- like the I think ter- it was the Teravangian day, right? I think it was because I, the last chapter I read was when Aelin talks to the uh, Dead Eye, or like encounters it, and I like put the book down after that. And so I think that, I think that the scene that Sanderson just expected to be kind of like glanced over, like really just stuck mm. in my head the whole night. And yeah, your subconscious had, mind yeah. figured it out. And then I had Teravangian moment where normally I'm the one coming to you guys for the theories and the in depth Stormlight archive, but apparently this time. I was blessed by cultivation. So that, I mean, I feel like that kind of took away the jaw dropping moment was because that was, once you saw it, it was like pretty well foreshadowed that Mm -hmm. was going to happen. But I do feel like it was handled really well. I mean, even with just like Veil, like realizing, I mean, this is kind of on the nose a little bit, but realizing that the name Veil was meant to keep that knowledge from her, you know, Mm -hmm. from Shalon. I will say, that pattern it was kind of like like pattern had like what did pattern try and form when when he like started to form like a little figurine and like she ran away from him i was kind of confused about that part and also how did she? oh i assume that he was forming uh like bringing in her dead eye yeah but can you her, do that her first how cryptic you, how do you do it or like forming an illusion of it somehow you know seem uh, like you need to acknowledge this yeah, I, I think that that was happening. I just didn't know that that was something that could be done. It was a little confusing. I was also like, what is this? Yeah. Anyway, so uh, how did Pattern find her? That's like still a key question. But also like nobody is going to blame Shalon for having like a childish reaction. Not a childish reaction, just the reaction of a child to killing her parents with this with this blade. Dude, except for half the honor spread. Well, yeah. those guys are ruthless. Even they didn't really know the full context of it. You know, I mean, not so, that it would yeah. make a difference. But. So, so part of me wonders if there was some sense of honor shenanigan or ghost bloods. This would be ghost bloods, right? Her family was working yeah. with the ghost bloods. So if the ghost bloods like specifically sent a cryptic to bond her. Right. Because if your pattern, the cryptic, why in the world would you go bond with the one person who has just killed a cryptic spren? Well, even even originally, even a, the original cryptic spring that she bonded, I think was probably sent by the ghost bloods. Or uh, was the fact that she had a cryptic what drew the ghost bloods in? Right. And you have so many questions, right? Like, A, does she have to re-say the oaths, right? B, when did she get pattern? C, how young was she here? Like, are spren just bonding 
children? Like, is it possible for a child to say those oaths and mean them? Like, mm-hmm. and plus, like, at least at that point, Shalon had like a decent life, right? Like, she was kind of the son, the daughter of yeah. a Lydice family, who at that point was like, I don't know, just you know, is it possible a- she wasn't bonding pattern until like well into Way of Kings because. In Way of Kings, when she's all terrified because she's seeing the cryptics and she's drawing them, right? Isn't that like a bunch of cryptics observing her? Like patterns, yeah. one of them deciding to come over. Yeah, I think and that's, bond her. I think that's the theory is that uh, she didn't bond pattern until until Way of Kings. I like that. Yeah, I could get behind that. But then, did she have to re-say the oaths? Do you have to re-say the oaths if you broke your oaths? She she would have had to say at least like life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination, right? I I don't know though. If you break them, can you? Who knows? Yeah, we haven't seen. We have not seen that before. Yeah. So anyway, this is it was well done, and I think that all of us enjoyed that. The thing that kind of like maybe not overshadowed it for me, but like was more interesting was her kind of coming to grips with her personalities, right? And like we know that Vale's gone, is Radiant gone? It was cool that Radiant was the one that killed Ayale. So that was cool, like Radiant. Yeah. Lots of L's. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it was cool that Radiant did that because it, it's a it's a tie into Teravangian's point of view where like the leader is going to yeah. kind of protect the common person. Yeah, and that's something we talked about as well. Like we were kind of right there. We thought that Ayale was killed by Formless, but it was, it was still Shallan, but it was actually Radiant. Formless wasn't as big of a deal as we thought. Well, Josh was actually, I went back and listened to, I think it was part two podcast. And Josh said that formless was her base personality. And that was kind of what we learned was that like formless was Shalon and Shalon was formless. Like they were kind of, kind of one and the same. Well, it wasn't like she was always formless. She was always Shalon, but she was like bringing in formless as something that would protect her or something that she could go to to avoid all the pain of her past yeah i think formless was her way it was she was going to become formless when she went to the ghost like fully join the ghost yeah that's fair so So i I don't think my theory was exactly right i will say my one critique of this part was adolin sleepily muttering life-altering wisdom to her on her way out the door (laughs) like who just wakes up and is like, who's the better swimmer? The person I don't that know. the the sailor that lives all day in his ship and and dr- drowns, or the person that never touches the water. You don't just wake up and say so, that, man. I I disagree, partly because Adlin is Dalinar's son, and Dalinar is always spouting stuff like that, and uh-huh. and also because Adlin has had to think a lot about what it means to be strong, and because he's not radiant, like he he's strong in different ways. Than other people I, and I, I agree that it fits with the personality i just i have never in my life thought like that at seven in the morning wait <laughs> and he has been always like stressed the entire time about wanting a time to talk to shalon and like help yeah. her feel vindicated so i my guess is that like he had been planning on telling her this for a long time and so that's when you do your big speech is when your wife's getting know. dressed in the morning well, so he sees that something's wrong with her. Yeah. He's like, there's something way messed up here and he doesn't know what to do maybe and, other than like go for his prepared speech that he's had in the back of his mind. And, and this might be his last time to do it because the, he's going to his trial today. Like he might be thrown, you know, he's planning on being imprisoned. 
Yeah, that that was one thing that I felt we didn't get enough time with. Like, we're looking at the possibility of Adolin being locked away forever, and these guys don't seem to be too concerned about it. Well, I think it's because it was because Shalom was there, and he's like, would I allow her to bring me out? Like, I don't know. I feel like he was more concerned about not the fact that he would be in prison, but the fact that he would fail the mission. And I feel like we did spend a lot of time with his fears about that. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I was expecting more of a confrontation of this fact that if he loses the trial, he'd be locked up. Like they need to address this. They can't just say, Oh yeah, we'll talk about it tomorrow. We'll figure it out. Like they either need to say, we're accepting this. We're uh, we've got a plan. We, we got something. It well, didn't seem I, like they're... I think it seems. Yeah. I think that the, I think the honor spread treat prisoners a little bit differently. Like I think even if they did lock him up, I think they would still like allow Shalon to see it. I, I will say though that Shalon probably wasn't too worried about it because in the back of her mind she was pretty convinced that she was going to go kill Kalek and take his place. And so he she yeah. was worried about that. Adolin was more worried about not living up to expectations. I, so, but I do see where you're coming from. Like it seems like this is like he's on death row right now. You know what I mean? He's not really like coming to terms with his. Yeah, although Adolin does for sure have a huge invincibility complex, yeah. so maybe he was never concerned about it. Yeah, like, I'll just charge 12 people and expect to live. Yeah, too used to a shard plate. Uh, with going back to Pattern a little bit, like, I'm still a little confused about was Pattern the spy or not, and was he really just talking to Wit, and I just had a little too, little too much whiplash back and forth. I think I think he was talking to Wit. I think that formless was still the spy that was talking to the ghost bloods i don't think that's been like 100 percent confirmed well do you think that the person that was close because they said that we have somebody close to downer or whatever do you think that that was jasna being close to wit and what being spied on hmm maybe hmm. or and or it was wits already concerned about people spying on him well, that's what I'm saying. Like we know, Ghost Bloods specifically. Okay, yeah, I seriously. Right, I'm saying Ghost Bloods have acted like they have this person close to the inner circle, but that could have just been the. It's like the classic. I slipped a recording pen in with the cops' office supplies. Like Wit got fooled by the oldest play in the book. Yeah. So I'm yeah. like intern Ghost Blood was like, <laughs> I'm gonna get wet. Still a lot of questions around Shalon. You kind of hinted at this, Ben, but I did want to mention, like, uh, as far as the whole identity crisis, her her dissociative identity disorder, I'm interested to hear. I'd like I would like to hear from someone who has this in real life to get a sense of how well this was handled, like how realistic this seems. And to be fair, we don't know what will happen with Shalon moving forward. Like, I I would assume that she's not just like, oh yeah, I'm Shalon now. Never happened. I'm all perfect. I would assume she's still got some issues, but I thought it was interesting that she, I mean, at this point, it seems like she was almost healed of her mental shortcoming here or her, her you know, her disability. Well, I don't know. I think that Vale went away because Vale's main purpose was to ease. This is narratively. I'm not talking about like um, how the disability works in real life, but narratively Vale was there to protect Shalon from the knowledge that she broke her oaths. And so now that she didn't, like, now that she came to that knowledge, I can see why Bill would go away. And again, this is within the confines of the story, not without dissociative. So it's possible that uh, with DID, like, 
maybe these identities are built up to serve a purpose in in uh, someone's life. Maybe we shouldn't speculate too much on how um, it yeah. actually works in real life. But I guess what I'm trying to get at, you know, I, I would like to learn. Maybe I'll make a Reddit post after we finish the book and see if we can get uh, one of the beta readers to comment or something. He did say that chapter 93 was the hardest to write because of getting the the perspectives right and it had the most revisions and he had a lot of input from beta readers. So I'm going to assume that he's doing it the right way. I mean, I just read Donchard. I talked about how as a quadriplegic, I was really affected by it and thought it was really accurate. So I think I'd be pretty hypocritical of me to say like, oh no, that's totally wrong because one, I don't know. And two, he's done it well in the past and I do have a a lot of trust and respect in Sanderson. So I assume this is done well. But I would like to hear a little bit more yeah. from someone with DID. Yeah. So I I was confused a little bit. Did she actually say an oath there? Or I mean, so we know that oaths for Lightweavers are accepting truths, right? Or like like something around. Yeah. yeah. I think I think I think she did. Okay. I think. Yeah. It, she used up a ton of stormlight. She did. Yeah. She, she used up all the stormlight in the you know in the really nicely polished and cut gemstone that she had i guess usually saying oaths gives you like a huge burst of power right who knows it could be different from light for light weavers yeah okay so that so we're kind of uh questioning that what about thydekar yeah interesting we got some hints your theory is that uh, this is a character from mistborn right ben yeah i'm still sticking by that man we've i've gotten some support on discord too I dismissed that at first and I'm starting to revise that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. But the thing is though, I don't know. He's kind of spoiling it for people that unless he does like an Azure thing or Azure thing where it's like the same character but a different name and you were wouldn't know it's the same character unless you've already read Warbreaker. But if he introduces this character, then like people that read Stormlight before Mistborn are going to have something big spoiled for them. I would assume, like you say, it'll be an entirely different name and we'll never actually see the first name. Okay, that's fair. As we try to kind of dance around the Mistborn spoilers. If we get into part five and it becomes more obvious, we'll throw out a spoiler warning for Mistborn and talk about it full on. But for now, that's probably not necessary. We're in theory land right now. All right, so the final bit was Kaladin and the Bridge Four viewpoints we didn't i mean kaladin wasn't one of the names on the first page of part four but we did get one excellent chapter excellent chapter with kaladin we finally got the wit story that josh was asking for so josh did this meet up to your yeah, expectations dude. i i straight up I, I always loved wit's stories i think that this could be like a bedtime story that i tell my kid you know yeah for sure you should do it yeah no i probably I, like i'm fully counting on it I love the story. I love all of his little parables that he puts into his books. Uh This one was no exception. And just how tailored it was to Kaladin's current situation. It's just great. You know, anyway, that's, there's my gushing. It was cool that what's like, don't read into this, (laughs) you know, and you're like, uh, and I will say the font on the chapter heading was weird and so at first glance i thought it said the dock and the dragon like the g looked like a c to me and i was very confused for like a solid minute like while reading the chapter i'm like where's the doctor here so you're as confused as kaladin when kaladin was told there was a dog and he's like what the heck is a dog (laughs) a dog is like an axe sound only cuddlier 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This was a great, yeah, I'm with you guys. It was great. Uh, you know, I, I got a little bit emotional during the story. I thought it was awesome. Hit home, you know, as, as I sure it did for a lot of people. So yeah, I thought it was great. And, and I guess we'll see if Kaladin is able to apply this, right? So he's waking up now he's healed but his current situation is still not great. Is he going to be able to kind of think back to this learning and, uh, and you know, and, and try to improve with what's going on with his emotional state, hopefully. Can we just talk about the hug between him and Wit? Yeah, let's talk about it. I just, like, that was so perfect. And the fact that Wit was, like, totally willing to betray his agreement with uh, Odium by directly interfering in that, that was a cool kind of like there's undercurrents to this that we're not exactly sure about and man it's just it encapsulated so much stuff i mean odium was cheating so wit thought he was fine too as well it, it, and sanderson said the wit story is going to happen in a place where you don't expect wit to turn up and on braze is not necessarily where you'd expect to see either one of these characters so uh, there was a lot going on here. It was great. Were they on Braze? I didn't think it was. I thought it was like meant to simulate Braze. It was the same exact landscape that Rubaniel described Braze as being. So yeah, it either was Braze or it was meant to like spiritual realm Braze. I don't know. Oh, we sorry. Talking about Braze, we also had confirmed that people are in fact world hopping through Shades Mara. That was confirmed between the conversation with Rubaniel and Navani. Snavani was like, how, you know, like, how long would it take to get to Braze, like, in a spaceship, essentially? Oh, yeah. And she's like, well, they, they've tried, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, it died within a few hours. <laughs> so so we're meant to assume that there's just some random fuse orbiting one of the planets in the Rosharian system. <laughs> we, yeah, that is a thing. <laughs> Even with a lot of stormlight to heal them. Okay, so, yeah, my postulate or my uh, wondering what happened what would happen if you tried to cross between worlds and Shadesmar if you were just be met with like solid, you know, brick because it was the opposite of nothing? It turns out that you can just go, you know, it's just kind of like a separate plane of existence where you can just, if you just journey for a long way, like we saw happen in, in secret history, only in the spiritual realm, it, it probably mm. seems like something like that. Yeah, again, I go back to my theory that like Shadesmar is the cogn like cognitive realm, and if nobody has cognitive impressions of space, then it's probably you know a lot shorter distances than you would have in space. It's like if you fold it in half and stick a pin right through it, <laughs> and you can just traverse dimensions. That's another interstellar thing, right? Uh, I no. mean, that's a wormhole thing. Is that, that that's just like a general uh, Stephen Hawking level. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. So okay, what about? What about Tef's viewpoint? We're kind of sticking with Bridge 4 for a second there. That was pretty cool. Yeah, no, let's wrap up with Bridge 4. Okay, so you like the Tef viewpoint because uh, that wasn't my favorite of the three, well, but tell us why you liked it. I liked it because he woke up and he just assumed, I've never struggled with addiction and nobody super close to me has either, but I think that that was probably done realistically Well, where he like wakes up and he just assumed that he had had a relapse. And then he and then he proceeds to open up to the to the crew about his parents and his experience and i don't know it was just like i really appreciate tough this book he's like pulling bridge four on his back right now i think it's great how you know the three of us have different life experiences and as we read through there's different things that strike us emotionally 
And Sanderson is really, I mean, I made this comment on Discord, but, you know, bravo for Sanderson for writing this series with the intention of like trying to make the world a better place, like actively writing a book series that highlights a ton of different things, but is ultimately trying to represent different, uh, you know, things that don't get enough time on screen and connecting with a lot of people. And, you know, I've seen a lot of comments on Reddit about people's, you know, tagging Sanderson saying like, look, I was in a terrible place and these books have really helped me out you know, life before death, strength before weakness, et cetera. There's so much good that comes out of reading this series. Yeah. Yeah. And I like how he does it unapologetically too, because there are some, I think that in some ways, like he could suffer narratively from it, or maybe just because he's not going along with a trendy kind of grim, dark, more, you know, right. And he never, but he never seems preachy while doing it. No, well, I think sometimes he could. Like the fact that he puts in pretty much a parable into every book from wit, like that could come across as preachy. Like if you, if it would seem out of place if Joe Abercrombie did that, you know, and well, for sure, books, it would, it would, it, but it would seem preachy in his book if he did it. But because Sanderson has kind of established that that's the tone of his books, it doesn't seem too preachy. But that doesn't mean it's not really. I don't know. I'm not trying to criticize it. I'm just, I'm glad that he's not trying to like toe the line of trying to be trendy with what's going on with larger fantasy. He's just kind of doing it himself. Yeah, I think this is like point. an ancillary, ancillary, like to his rule of awesome, where he is like part of that, right? Like he, he doesn't care if this kind of stuff wouldn't actually happen in the real world. Like, you know, like that's the kind of the grimdark version of the genre. Like nothing's going to happen that wouldn't also happen in the real world, given the set of constraints where he's just like, if it makes people happy, then put it in there. You know what I mean? Like, okay, find a way to work it in. If it's making you happy as an author and you think that's going to connect with people, then do it. I'm assuming the A word you're going for there is addendum, perhaps? No, ancillary. It It is ancillary to it. Right, like it's not, it's not like he okay. he's, he says like air on the side of awesome in terms of like powers and okay. Uh, okay. like abilities, but like this is air on the side of awesome of putting stuff into your book that might not belong there always, but like uh, you think is going to connect with people. So two other viewpoint, last two viewpoints before we wrap up. So we got Relaine and we have David. I've I, I feel like I have to retract some of my comments on David because I didn't <laughs> say anything bad about David. But I did say, like, oh, I forgot this guy existed, and now he's awesome, and I'm totally on Team David. Well, you can't retract that you forgot he viewpoint. existed. Did you forget or not? Well, <laughs> I did I did forget, but I'll retract my, like, rhythm of skepticism that I attuned <laughs> while saying that because now I'm totally on board with David. Like, I'm glad he's back, and I'm glad we got his viewpoint. And I thought that this was, uh, you know, really well done for, you know, someone who's mentally handicapped. Yeah, so I'm just going to say... I agree with that. With Relaine, though, man, I don't know. Relaine's just not my favorite right now. You think he's too much of a jerk to David? He's he's a jerk. He was kind of a jerk to David. He was for sure a jerk to to Venley after Venley like came clean to him. I don't know. Venley just well, told to him be that. Fair, I thought that was the natural. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Venley just I think told it's natural, him that but she oh destroyed his entire civilization, and he like gets upset with her. Yeah, I think that was fine with him. I do think it might have been. A little crass with David, but I think it's also interesting that Relaine, you know, I'm glad that he's not making Relaine the, you know, 
perfect person is like, oh, we feel so bad for him because he's awesome and he's, you know, being discriminated against, but he's still like a pretty dynamic person in of himself. Like he's got faults and he's got blind spots. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I just, I don't know, man. Relaying is not my favorite right now. We, I think it's because I was like hoping for like awesome things to happen with him. You know, like either for him to like bond the tower or like, dude, give him a break. You still might. This is part four. He's okay. like on part five. The sibling who straight up said that he would have been a great person to bond. Okay. Uh-huh. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> this is, I'm telling you, this is, I think that this is one of the reasons why it's hurting me to like take this much time after every single, the, you know, the 12, part to analyze it. The 12 hours you've had to wait. <laughs> So the sibling bonding. So we have these. These guys are both candidates, right, to be the bondsmith. We've joked about both of them. Relaine has been talked about bonding the sibling on screen. That you know that was Navani's suggestion. But David has been communicating with the siblings. So Team Relaine or Team David team for David. sibling bond. Team Relaine, man. You are Team Relaine. After saying you weren't a fan of Relaine, I yeah, <laughs> still not a fan with him. But I also said that I hoped that it would happen. I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm not a fan of his story so far. Like, to me, his story has been people go to him with, like, major life-altering news, and he's like, well, that was stupid of you. And, like, that's kind of what what his response has been to the last two people that have done, that have done that. He, he's, got, uh, he's got a lot of creme over his heart right now, it seems like. You know, he's he's been held down for a while. Yeah. I think it's a pretty natural uh, life situation to be in, a pretty natural mental-emotional state for him to be in. Uh, I'm going to say I'm team David as well. I thought, you know, another, another part that kind of got me emotionally was when he talks about, you know, once I get a sprint, I'll be fixed. And, you know, my brain that's messed up will be all better. It's like, oh man, you know, heart David. And I wonder if, you know, if he really does bond, will that happen? Or is that a healing that wouldn't happen because that's his identity? Like we kind of talked about this identity based healing in our Donshard review I don't know on this one. Interesting. It does seem like his identity identity is being mentally disabled. So he might still be able to be a radiant despite that. There's nothing meaning that he couldn't bond a spren, but I would kind of expect him to still have this disability. So, okay. If David does like how similar to his, is he too similar to Renarin at that point? Right, because we also know Renarin. Well, no, I mean, I think Renarin is like on the spectrum versus David would have more of like an intellectual disability. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So we know that like Renarin is like autistic. I guess I was kind of assuming that that was similar to David. No, I mean, he has like a like a learning, you know. Yeah, like, David said he had, you know, he didn't really talk until he was five or six. Like, yeah. I'm a fan of David. I just... And plus, I think he wants to be bridge four, like, and have like be a windrunner. Yeah, windrunner. Whereas like Renarin has kind of like already rejected that opportunity, and seems like I don't know. I so think do, he's a better do match. That, do you think that David hasn't bonded his friend because he's not willing to like be honest? I mean, that seems more like a light weaver mm-hmm. thing, but oh, because he's been be cool. kind of lying to everyone. But I don't really see how that works out with, you know, Windrunners. But so far, he's only said life before death. Maybe maybe he'll say each part, each of the three lines of the first oath at different times. And then when he finally says journey before destination, he'll bond the sprint. 
Yeah, that's a Steven, Steven guarantee right there. That's Yeah, that's a pentology guarantee. Okay, let's go into our worst of the best segment. We are running low on time, so just quickly, um, we'll have Michael uh, Kramer and Kate Redding read our intro in. The worst of the best. With so many exemplary moments in this book, it's almost unfair to nitpick. But that's the segment. It's the pimple on the princess. The stain on the satin. And the terror before the triumph. The unfortunate portion of an otherwise stellar performance. Someone has to point it out. Okay, so like before... Tell me briefly the worst part of the part and then how that turned itself around and was great or what you're looking forward to for the end of the book. Okay, so I, I don't think this is going to be a surprise. I think the worst of the best for me is Navani and R- Rabanael's relationship where I feel like there's a lot of highs where, like I, like I mentioned before, one of my favorite parts was like, you don't have to use a title with me and Navani really coming to her own. I feel like it was buried very far under a lot of scientific methody stuff that didn't need to be there. So scientific methody stuff for the worst and the the relationship between Navani and Rabonael for the best. Nice. Josh? Um okay. How little time they spent in lasting integrity, just in general, and less and the setting for the best. You know, like Shalon going and figuring out like when the gravitational plane shifted. Like I, I could have used a few more scenes like that. And so it's, I'm kind of cheating because none of it was the worst. I just needed more of it. And they also yeah. haven't left to be clear. Yeah, but we don't have very much of the book left and I don't see any like, Dude, what if that becomes like the human stronghold of Shadesmar? Okay. Yeah. Then that would be way cool. I'm just saying in Come part on, Josh, four, you're, you're worsting the best part when before it's I'm even just done. saying in part four, like I feel like that's when we could have had like a little less, meandering through Shadesmar a little bit more meandering through lasting integrity part four was entirely in in integrity man i I know i'm just saying cut some of the wandering in part three and put it it's my worst of the best okay and part yeah in part two you read you read part two twice that's probably why you thought they were wandering for so long yeah they wandered (laughs) a lot (laughs) okay all right my my worst part well i guess it's kind of similar to you so i thought mraze's plan was fantastic really like it, it made perfect sense and he totally could have he was very close to having shallan doing this for him you know manipulative getting adolin in a position where i mean i don't know how much of a hand he had in all this at least he was able to adapt to it really well but it seemed like he should have succeeded here and i wanted more i guess the best part was i thought this was fantastic manipulation and nice politics but i wanted more of it and I kind of wanted it to succeed and have to deal with the ramifications of that. And instead, we're still left with this big question mark around Marais and the Ghost Bloods. And we were just doled out these tiny little details. And eventually, it's like, ah, what is going on here with Shalon's backstory and the Ghost Bloods? So I hope that we get more of this in part five. And I hope that Marais does something because I think he's a cool character. I think he's got a potential to be another great villain, along with the way that Rabaniel's developed in part four, part three, part two in this book. And uh, I, I kind of like Marais. I think he's a creepy dude. I want more of him. 
Can can I add one more quick worst of the best was Kalek, and just like everything to do with him. Like it seemed, like I think like Harold's just in general, and as well, I'll give another honorable mention to the cube. <laughs> the cube. <laughs> yeah, I just I w- wish we knew how that worked. I can only more. I can only see a Rubik's cube. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, Kalek. This is kind of a deep cut. I threw this in the Discord as well, but his whole bizarre the way he was acting and talking. He reminded me of characters straight out of series of unfortunate events. There's a trial at the end of that series, and it's kind of like a farce trial. It seemed like the same thing, and Kalek is just a crazy character who would say things in kind of uh, very off-putting mannerisms, and it seemed like wasn't taking anything seriously. Sounded like Sanderson had been reading a ton of that series, and yeah, I'm kind of with you. It's a little odd. It's a different tone than most of the series strikes. I will say I was so close because a lot of people were like swearing using Collect's name at the beginning of the book. I was so close to making a prediction on there around Discord, but I didn't do it. So I don't get that so, mic drop moment. Wait, okay. Here's here's crazy. Isn't Collect's breath like a in-world swear? Am I making that up? Yeah. Yeah, that's how they use it. Uh-huh. Yeah. So does he have, do you think he has breath? Could like be. a messenger? I mean, he's he's like confirmed that he's traveling between worlds, right? He has no, he Apple. can't travel. He's trying to find a way off world, but he can't. Oh, yeah, that's true. But he has an apple. I mean... I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of artifacts going around between worlds. Yeah. Maybe I think he might be confined to the Rosharian system. All right, let us know uh, what we missed here, what theories you have around these things. Clearly, we're still uh, trying to get through the rest of the book. We're processing, right? We've done our duty here. We're we're processing, trying to uh, get our thoughts together. And we're excited to read part five and figure out what, if anything, from this review is going to make any sense when the entire book is over. So Ben and Josh, thanks guys. Thanks for uh, thanks for slowing down, Ben. Yeah. And uh, let's get back at it. Let's time for the Sander Lunch, right? Yeah, let's time do it. Time for the Sander Lunch. All right, see you guys. Thanks, guys.